Hi everyone, this is Mitch Ashley with DevOps.com and you're listening to another DevOps Chat Podcast. Today I'm joined by Andy Mann, Chief Technology Advocate with Splunk. And our topic is a report that just recently released called, What is Your Data Really Worth? The ultimate question, you know, it's kind of from, uh, you know, what's uh, 42? Is that the answer? Okay, anyway, another another topic. <laughs> so welcome, Andy. Great to have you on DevOps Chat. Hey, Mitch, it's so good to be with you again. Uh, absolutely. Andy and I are friends from way back, so we know each other for quite some time now. Yeah, so this, well, could get, this could get a bit squirrely, mate. Let's, let's, let's see how we go. <laughs> I'm going to do my, I, I made sure I didn't have too much caffeine before we recorded, so hopefully that will kind of keep me in check anyway, and we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, for folks that don't know you, tell us a little bit about uh, what you do and uh, what you do at Splunk and a little bit of your background. Sure. So, Mitch, I'm, I'm Chief Technology Advocate at Splunk for our IT Markets Group. What that means, as an advocate, I spend my time explaining stuff to other people and advocating for technology mostly. So, I talk a lot. A lot of people will see me doing podcasts like this. They'll see me at conferences and keynotes, writing and, and other things. A lot of outbound talking about Splunk and you know, our data to everything platform and all the great solutions we've got to bring data to everything. But a lot of people don't see the other side of it, which is me advocating for my customers. It's one of Splunk's core values that we have two ears and one mouth, and we should try and use them at least in that proportion. So I try to listen a lot to experts like yourself, like other analysts and, and uh, pundits, customers, market makers, and and try and help Splunk create the best possible products and solutions to make our customers successful. Sounds like when I was a kid, the saying was, uh, God gave you two ears for a reason, Mitch. <laughs> exactly. Right. Oh, you weren't the only one who got told that as a kid, huh? <laughs> no, no, I'm guilty as charged. So let's just jump to the report. Tell us a little bit about, if, obviously, you're in the data aggregation, analysis, collection, all kinds of interesting part of the data world and lots of different sources. How did you decide to try to answer the question of what's your data really worth? What was the genesis of this report? Well, the the first thing we did was we decided to find an independent expert to help us. So we went to Enterprise Strategy Group. Now, you know them. They're an analyst yeah. firm out of Boston. Good folks. Good folks. Uh, good, yeah. Really good folks. Their key areas where they focus on is data and security. And so for the data part of this survey, they were a very obvious choice. So they helped us figure out a bunch of questions to ask to see if companies were using their data in advanced ways or not. So we were looking at things like how much data they use, where do they get their data sources from, which business departments use data in their decision making, and a whole bunch of other outcomes. And we were able to figure out from that, you with working with ESG, with Enterprise Strategy Group, we were able to figure out a certain percentage, around about 10% of the survey respondents, over 1,300 respondents, were what we call data innovators. So they were taking more data, they were using it in more deliberate ways, they were using it in more business departments and more business decisions. And so we were able to figure out, well, if they're using data in better ways, what are the good things that happen when you do that? And comparatively for the companies that aren't using data as in sophisticated ways, what are the downsides for them? So it was a really interesting set of questions and answers that we managed to find some really interesting data on. Great question to ask. So tell us, what was the number one thing that jumped out to you? What was the learning you didn't expect to get from the study? So I think the 
one of the one of the learnings that I think we did expect to get was that using data better helps you in your business in all sorts of ways. So the one big area I think I was a little bit surprised at was that using data better is not just going to help you save money, it's going to help you make money. So for these data innovators, on average, they had a profitability of around 12% gross um, across different sizes of businesses as well. That meant about $38 million average total gross profit for these innovative organizations who are collecting, managing, and analyzing data to improve their business. I think the second thing that, that surprised me was that this was an even split between top line and bottom line. You know, in IT especially, we often look at ourselves as a cost center. We're often told to do more with less. We're mm. often told to find ways to save. What we don't hear a lot about IT is how important it is to making money, to adding revenue. But that's what we found from this research. Data innovators added, on average, over 5% to their annual revenue mm -hmm. because they were using data better. And that added to reduction of cost of around 5% as well. So that was, that's how we get up to that 10 to 12% um, on the bottom line. But it's a combo of making more money and saving money, which is, you know, there's not a lot of technologies which you can point to for that. Yeah, and definitely both sides of the line now. That was 5.32% uh, over 12 months as a result of their data use. Talk about how, how do you define a data innovator? So some of the things we looked at for the data innovators, um, you know, are they more or less sophisticated in their strategy? So do they have a data strategy? Do they have a chief data officer? Uh, do they have specific plans over a 12 to 24 month period of how they're going to get more data in and use that data? Do they have analytics programs in place? Do they have a data science program in place? You know, these are some of the signals that we looked at um, to see what they were able to do with data. And then in terms of the outcomes, we looked at things like your revenue growth. We looked at operational cost reduction, the ability to innovate. How long does it take to get new products or new ideas to market? Uh, we looked at uh, outcomes as well, like customer satisfaction, customer retention, ability to make faster decisions. So all of this sort of gave us this picture of what does a data innovator look like? Now, just to give folks a, an idea here, it, this isn't like, um, you know, baseball, everybody gets an award and gets to be called a data innovator. This is 11% of global organizations was your measurement of where you end. So, so it is kind of top 11%, top uh, kind of cream of crop of the crop of folks. I found another interesting stat that I read in the report. It said, you see, one in five data innovators generated more than 20% of their annual revenue from products and services developed in the past 24 months compared to just 2% of data innovators. So, so if you're, if you are, have really invested in analyzing, assessing, using and applying data, it, 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 that number is backing up what you said about, it. yes, it does add top line growth. Yeah. Because I mean, when you've got data to go and you can make these rapid decisions, we talk about innovation and I've, you know, obviously I've written about innovation quite a lot and we've talked about it directly a couple of times and you know, to innovate, you've got to be able to make fast decisions. You've got to try things out. You know, typically 95% of innovation will fail. That's okay. As long as you fail fast, fail small, fail cheap and fail forward. But if you don't have the right data, 
to make decisions, then all of a sudden you're in a data paralysis. You're in a decision paralysis. You can't make those rapid decisions. You end up having to get more information. You end up going with the loudest voice in the room or you end up going with the, you know, the, the loudest person in the room, which, by the way, tends to work against some of the greatness of diversity and inclusion about getting different opinions, about getting different mm. you know, di diverse opinions and viewpoints. So if you, but if you have data, the data speaks for itself and you can set gates for innovation. You know, this is classic innovation theory. You try stuff out, you do it small, you set gates, you pass the gate. You, you know, one example, for example, and directly for this audience as well, is thinking about what is a high quality release. Is it a release that has no bugs? Well, that might be too high a bar to get over, but to understand what a level of testing has it gone through, what is the pass fail rate, what is the code quality, uh, what is the compliance quality in your code, these sorts of things, they're data points that you can then make decisions on. Even more so, you can automate decisions based on data points. If I've passed 99.92% of my tests and I've run 100% of the tests that I expect, that's a really good mark and I'm probably going to mm -hmm. go straight into production with it. Mm -hmm. So I can iterate faster. I can do new things in new ways because I have surety that the decisions I'm making are real and based on substantive information that will matter when I get to prod. So innovation is absolutely a strong outcome that we see in this research as well, coming from these data innovators. Now, I kind of threw the trick question at you first. What didn't you expect to learn from this? I mean, let me toss that one out there again, since we talked about some things you did expect to learn. Were there any, you know, small, medium, large uh, surprises that you walked away from some of the answers that came out of the research? Um, yeah, look, I think some of the surprising stuff was just around the, 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 the vertical side and the industries that were good okay. and the industries that were bad. Mm -hmm. I would have expected some other, some industries who are, uh, lower on the, the ability to get data insights, I would have expected them to be higher, um, specifically higher ed and public sector. They have a lot of access to data. Mm -hmm. They don't necessarily have the same issues with data analytics and aggregation that private sector do. You know, they've got things in place around privacy and protection of data. Um, so there's some really positive things, higher education especially, I would have thought, well, they have investigative units. Research is something they do. I was a little surprised by that. What we saw was that technology organizations do really well by mm -hmm. using data better. I sort of got that. That makes sense. Mm -hmm. They're involved in machine learning programs and AI programs and things like that. They're on the cutting edge. Um, something around two-thirds of financial organizations had really good results in terms of higher revenue through better utilization of data assets. Mm -hmm. um, and again, financials are, financial organizations often on the cutting edge of technology and so forth. So that made sense. But for me, higher education public sector were only down around 50% at this you know, ability to use data in, in operational ways. And honestly, that surprised me. I think they could do a lot better. I think they've got the fundamentals, the people the technology, the inquisitiveness, and the opportunity, certainly, to be able to use data in better ways. So, I'd, yeah, I'd love to see those numbers come up better. Now, I wonder if, do you think there's a correlation or a connection to this idea that uh, those folks that were data innovators, their culture is what you termed in this report, quote, unquote, data obsessed. It was just 
data-driven company. Everything is, you know, decisions are driven by data, you know, collecting, using, it's not just the loudest voices in your room. Seems like that's a pretty high correlation there to the folks that are, you know, really in a place and are leveraging data in a very successful way. Yeah, the cultural aspect is really interesting. You know, we've talked about culture in the DevOps community for, for, for a decade or more oh, yeah. and how important the cultural changes. And, you know, we know from DevOps, you can throw all the tools at the, at the problem. If you don't have a culture of collaboration and sharing, then you won't have a collaborative environment to work in regardless of what tools you throw out there. Data is the same. The data's there. The big difference between the data innovators and the yeah, companies that aren't necessarily as, as innovative with data, you know, the, 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 the companies we call the data attractors and stuff, one of the big differences is they're inquisitive about the data that exists and go looking for it and look for ways to use it. Mm-hmm. It's not necessarily they have more data. It's not necessarily they have different data. It's not even necessarily that they have data that people don't understand or understand better or worse. It's that they have a culture that values data-driven decisions. And so when the decision comes to the, you know, the meeting comes to a decision factor, they have people in that room who deliberately put their hand up and go, what is the data saying? Mm -hmm. Rather than having the people in that room go, okay, I think we've got everything we need. What do we all think? Mm -hmm. Right? And that's a cultural change, Mitch. That's a cultural difference. Having that data obsession, as we've termed it in the report, means that your culture is looking for data, actively looking to make those data-driven decisions, actively looking to get data from everywhere and bring it to every decision. Not Mm -hmm. just the important or less important or whatever, every decision. And that absolutely is a cultural difference. Yeah. So, and don't take the, this is not a trick question at all. I'm, I'm interested or curious your thoughts on um, data, 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 extremely important. This the report showed the value and the impact that can have. Um, I'm thinking in an analysis standpoint, sometimes you can get into analysis paralysis or maybe the insights aren't always just in the data, but from, you know, other factors and things. How do you, how do you blend that, that both the tools, the experience, the knowledge, the capabilities of the organization and infuse that with data in a really healthy way? What are your, what are your thoughts about that? Yeah, look, that's a super question, Mitch, because, you know, the lies, damned lies and statistics, right? Well, you can yeah, make we, data say whatever you want. <laughs> yes, we can make it say whatever we want, true. So you've got to be careful about stuff, right? You've got to be careful about bias. You know, I talked mm-hmm. about diversity, inclusion a little bit. If you're, all your algorithms are written by people that look and sound exactly like you, then they're certainly going to reflect who you are and what mm-hmm. you believe in the world. Mm-hmm. So having a variety of data, but having a variety of algorithms created by a variety of people from different backgrounds. So you've got to have diversity in your teams. Again, it's a cultural thing, right? Mm-hmm. Um, your data will tell you what you want it to if you ask it. So you've got to have the ability to get more data. You've got to have the ability to ask data, ask continual questions of your data. So it's not just the first answer. Typically, when you're doing data analytics and inquisition, the first answer just pops up more questions for you. So you've got to be able to go through that iterative cycle of asking more questions. That's a very fundamental and practical thing to do with how do you structure your data? What tools do you use to inquire after your data? Um, You've also got to have the understanding that some things are not necessarily a data decision. Some things actually don't have data. Mm -hmm. And you do need to have personal experience. I'm a big believer, Mitch, in letting the machines make the right call on stuff they're good at. 
complex data, time series data, high cardinality data, long your periodic data. Mm -hmm. um, your humans are awful at things like pattern matching. We're awful at looking at long-term data patterns. Um, machines are really good at that stuff. So also really good at large volumes of data where we, we as humans love a data point of one. You know, my exactly. kids, those millennials, <laughs> I have two data points at home. So I'm super right? smart. Oh yeah. And anecdata. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's the bane of our existence, I think. Uh, but it's important to understand that machines can't make intuitive leaps either. Mm -hmm. Machines have no imagination whatsoever. Have you ever seen some of the, the Harry Potter scripts that have been written by machine learning engines? Oh I my goodness. Not. No. So awful, Mitch. So bad. Because um, <laughs> machines have no imagination. So there's a, there is a cutoff point. And it's a fair question to ask. And I don't think there's any definitive answer of where that cut point is. But at some point, you need to have a human to interpret and bring imagination, bring intuition, bring experience to that data-driven decision. But I would certainly posit that you bring that human experience to the data you don't just go with a human gut feeling. Mm -hmm. Well, they and tell you what to do? I, I don't. I don't recall this was looked at or at least talked about in the report. I would imagine those data innovators have figured out where that balance is. It's not just about having the most data or the data. The answer is always in the data, right? It's that balance of, you know, it's the right sources. It's the valid. It's the negative validation as well as the positive validation, the correlation, the analytics, the, you know, how valid is the statistically valid is the information. So all kinds of things that data scientists know how to do that help you be really good about how to use that data. And of course, that's probably a maturity curve that you work up to. Yeah, exactly right. I mean. Yeah, we see, and it's not necessarily specifically in the data, but we absolutely looked at that maturity curve and mm -hmm. what it means to be a data innovator versus a data adopter versus a data deliberator, someone's in the early phase, for example. We deliberately looked at what it was like as a company, what patterns. And again, in the DevOps community, we're very familiar with this concept of patterns and anti-patterns. Mm -hmm. And the patterns that the data innovators took gave us a sense for what is a mature business. You know, we're not necessarily going to be able to tell you exactly what those gates are that define good innovation or define a good test outcome or define a good marketing campaign or whatever it is, a product that will be successful. But what we can do is help you understand what the data told us about data maturity. And so that's why we've, we're actually working on, we've actually loaded up onto the Splunk.com website, a data maturity calculator. So it's a free, it's a web-based assessment tool. It's free, obviously. So you can actually compare yourself against some of these data innovators. Um, you know, really easy way to assess what's your data use, what tools you need to get the most out of your data, what data you're missing, and how do you compare on this data maturity curve mm -hmm. to be able to make those decisions between smart, experienced individuals and definitive or maybe not so definitive data and data-driven decisions. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Great. Well, we're, we've uh, used our time pretty well here. Uh, let's certainly uh, find out how do folks get this information. You talk about this uh, assessment tool, kind of where are you on the data innovator curve? How about getting the report, information about it? Yeah, absolutely. So there are, it's, it's all available up on Splunk.com. In fact, if you go there on the homepage right now, you will see 
the data to everything platform and you'll see links there to be able to get that video. You'll be able to get also stories from some of our customers who have used data and turned data into doing and your know, household names like Domino's and others really using data to create an impact to be a data driven organization. So yeah, jump onto Splunk.com. You'll be able to see the report there. You'll be able to jump on, read the report. Um, you can also take that assessment for yourself. Um, it's it's going to be really fascinating to understand how you line up with those data innovators and where you can go to try and get a slice of that uh, extra money that those innovators are getting. Great. Splunk.com, great place to go for lots of other information as well as this report. Say, by the way, before we end things, I hope you come back. I'd love to have a conversation with you about data in the DevOps world. One of the challenge, the data has such a different nature, right? Than uh, yeah, look, uh, what we can do, you know, more flexible with software and, and uh, configuration automation and things around software. Oftentimes developers sort of struggle with this more amorphous large a uh, piece of data or, or, or collections of data and how that's evolving along with things like DevOps. So yeah, love yeah, to have a conversation a about conversation. that. Yeah, I would okay. love that, Mitch. That'd be cool. Awesome. Well, hey, thanks a lot, uh, Andy, for joining us today. Thank you, Mitch. It's a pleasure. Always great to talk to you, mate. Always great to talk with you. And I won't talk about where Australia fell on the list of data innovation, but that's another topic. So. <laughs> I know. Don't. Please don't. Thank okay. You. <laughs> All right. Well, you've listened to another DevOps Chat podcast. And I'd like to thank my, uh, my friend, uh, colleague, someone I've known for quite a while, Andy Mann, Chief Technology Advocate with Splunk for joining us. And thank you, of course, you are listeners. This is Mitch Ashley with DevOps.com, and you've listened to another DevOps Chat podcast. Be careful out there.